We come this afternoon to our Sunday afternoon service, as always, so thankful that God has allowed us the privilege and the prerogative to assemble for the purpose that He has, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. In fact, as we give appreciation to our Bible reading throughout the course of this year, you'll notice that we have arrived at the book of 1 Kings of the Old Testament, so our Old Testament reading for the last few days has been focused on chapters out of that Old Testament book. As you realize the history of what's set forth in those chapters, in those books, we come again to appreciate events which transpired many, many years ago, but nonetheless which by inspiration of the Spirit are provided for you and for me to learn. And tonight we'll give attention to that text that Brother Derek read just a moment ago in the 11th chapter of the book of 1 Kings. In fact, some introductory thoughts relative to it bring us to the slide that's before us now. Truly, as we concluded the book of 2 Samuel, we noticed that David was the central figure in that book. In fact, 1 Samuel often references Saul, and 2 Samuel so often David is the central figure. And as we come to 1 Kings, Solomon seems to take center stage through the first 12 chapters or so. As you noticed in a reading, though, very interesting, isn't it? Perhaps there's no character in all the Bible that spans so large a spectrum as that of Solomon. There are times we're drawn so near to him as a man of wisdom and a man of strength. And there are also times we're almost in disbelief at the foolishness which he seems to display. Tonight, I'd invite you to study with me a lesson entitled, The Lord Was Angry with Solomon. What is it that Solomon had done to bring about God's anger toward him? What kind of choices had Solomon made that resulted in that set of behaviors? One of the things we'll do this evening is to give appreciation to that central set of chapters and truly cast a spotlight on those choices that Solomon made much, much to his regret. As we begin that, let's give some consideration to the history as we have done it in times past, perhaps beginning with the very words you'll notice on that slide before you. I thought it wise to give some appreciation again to the father of Solomon. We remember that that was none other than King David. And that being said, we appreciate well that David is a man about whom so much is said in the Word of God. A man, for instance, that these particular comments seemingly are so direct. David was by no means a perfect individual, and we each understand that. He was guilty of his sins. He was guilty of his choices that were unwise. It is, though, to be noted that Solomon, or rather David, was a gentleman who seemingly had a desire to be near to God, and even in those mistakes, when they were brought to his attention, when those sins were brought before his eyes, he seemingly was so desirous of making things right. He would rush back to the sight of God. That particular statement brings us to notice that the time of David's death was before us in 1 Kings chapter 2. That life that he had lived as a king for 40 years came to its end. And certainly death will come your way and mine as well if the Lord delays his coming. David on that occasion made that statement in 1 Kings 2 verse 2, I go the way of all the earth. Death is that common finality again that we each are appointed to consider. Hebrews 9.27 still reads it as it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. And so it was that David passed on. As you appreciate there, Solomon became the next king. That would have made him third king of the United Kingdom of Israel. He followed both Solomon and David, or rather Saul and David. 
And in this position as king, we notice immediately we are impressed by the way in which he began his reign. I would invite you to notice carefully, it was such a noble, such a godly, such a righteous beginning. Isn't it true in 1 Kings 3, beginning in verse number 5, the God of heaven appeared to Solomon almost immediately after he began his reign and made the offer to him, ask what I shall give thee. God allowed Solomon to choose what would you like to have. And as we continue reading in that chapter, we understand well that the number of choices was almost unlimited. He was able to ask for length of life. He was able to ask for military victories and campaigns. He was able to ask for great wealth and majesty. And yet Solomon chose to ask for a wise and an understanding heart. He even made the observation that as a child in the midst of this thy kingdom, grant thy servant an understanding heart that I may be able to judge thy so great a people. 1 Kings 3 verse 9. That desire, that request that Solomon made was so very grand, wasn't it? Eschewing all the pursuits of the materialistic things about him, he asked for a wise and understanding heart. God was so pleased that he granted him not only that which he requested, but also those other things for which he had not requested. No wonder as that chapter goes on, then it informs us that Solomon was the greatest human of wisdom that the ancient world had ever known. People would come from all over to sit at the feet of Solomon and observe the wiseness and the wisdom that he expounded. We even remember the Queen of Sheba came from a far distance to listen and to merely observe the way in which Solomon ran his kingdom. How impressed anyone might well have been in considering how Solomon began his reign. In fact, isn't it a testimony? We have an Old Testament book called Proverbs, which is a testimony to his wisdom. 31 chapters that highlight before us many of the sayings of Solomon, many of the observations of Solomon, many of the inspired decrees of Solomon. Isn't it interesting, even Ecclesiastes, another Old Testament book of 12 chapters, and in that book we too appreciate as he wrestled with the very problem of human suffering and the nature of the means and the wisdom that attaches to life itself. It might well be in light of all that we can be impressed with the kind of person Solomon was at this point in his life and in his reign. However, our listing goes on. As we read in 1 Kings, one of his first major projects was the construction of the temple. Prior to that time, God's book, or rather the, the particular means of the mercy seat, and the Ark of the Covenant, they were housed in the mobile, movable tabernacle. And it was the desire of Solomon to construct a fixed, permanent structure in which God and His furnishings might dwell. And therefore, four chapters is given to appreciate the nature of that construction project. And it was extensive, wasn't it? So much so that you'll notice some of these comments. Consider for just a moment the wealth involved both in that and in the nature of Solomon as a king per se. Chapter number 4 is very clear in pointing out to us just a few of the following facts of consideration. Notice what a daily provision of Solomon and his temple or and his palace complex was. This is a daily provision. Each day 30 oxen were slaughtered to feed him and his host of servants. 
Furthermore, a hundred sheep were slaughtered every day. In addition, you'll notice a hundred and fifty bushels of flour had to be utilized just to cook a sufficient matter of baked goods for those that were himself and all the palace officials. In addition, approximately 300 bushels of meal. Can you imagine the provision of that much per day? The wealth was truly extensive, wasn't it? When we made mention a moment ago of that temple, and again, what was the construction project related to it? You'll notice the dedication of it alone is truly thought-provoking. When the time came that the temple was completed, and Solomon gathered all of the children of Israel and had its dedication, notice what took place. Solomon led the congregation in a large and very beautiful prayer that's recorded in chapter 8. You'll also notice at the conclusion of that prayer, a number of offerings were made at the occasion of the dedication, and the offerings tallied like this. 22,000 oxen were offered. 120,000 sheep offered on the occasion of the dedication. Aren't the numbers staggering in terms of their, their size? We gain it, among other things, an appreciation for the desire at that point in his life for Solomon to do what was pleasing to God related to the offerings. He held nothing back. Finally, you'll notice on that slide, after all those offerings and after the dedication of the temple, God appeared to Solomon again in chapter number 9. And God was so pleased with what had been done to that time that He said He would place His name where that temple was. And just as His name had been in relation to the tabernacle, it would be in relation to the temple. And what a glorious moment it must have been. And at that point, in a thunderous way, that brings us to the ninth chapter of this book. And in that chapter, you'll notice... Some of the latter parts in it, we have continuing features of respect toward Solomon's obedience. The Queen of Sheba visited in chapter 10, and that too was a very noble enterprise. That brings us to chapter number 11, the text of our lesson tonight. I'd like for you to listen as we read together and notice with some care the first 11 verses of 1 Kings 11. Brother Derek read three of those verses a moment ago. Let's notice what that background was that prompted that statement. And remember, our question is, what had Solomon done that made God angry with him? What choices had Solomon made that, aside from all of these things that seemingly were so positive and so noteworthy, what had he done? Verse number 1 begins it like this. But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come into you, for surely they will turn away their heart, your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wife tur wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. 
And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build in high place for Chemosh the abomination of Moab in the hill that is before Jerusalem and for Molech the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. That reads us through verse number 11 of 1 Kings chapter 11. Our heart drops as we read those verses. What had been so positive through ten chapters... What had been so noteworthy, so noble, and so appropriate it would seem was demolished in the iniquity, the sin, and ungodliness of these foolish choices that Solomon now made. Let's study that more thoroughly like this. As we now know what happened to Solomon, this particular slide makes it abundantly clear to us, doesn't it? I'd invite you to notice again the language of verse number 1. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit Himself wished for us to appreciate so thoroughly the nature of what is before us. The very first word of verse number number 1 of chapter 11 is, But on the heels of all of these positive things through ten chapters, it is still not possible to excuse Solomon's foolishness. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, Solomon turned his attention and his heart toward these. And the text is very clear, isn't it, that they turned his heart away from God. He loved them more than he loved the Heavenly Father. He turned his attention to their wishes, their preferences, their desires, their religion more so than he did to that religion that was such a dire and fervent part of that which was the life of his own father David. Maybe some of these thoughts next come before us. Isn't it amazing that God Himself said in verse number 10 as He addressed Solomon, I warned you about this. Did you note the language with me? And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. God had given Solomon warning relative to the danger of this behavior, hadn't He? In fact, I would invite you to notice the text of the first paragraph in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here were the nations, the peoples that were foreigners and strangers to the children of Israel. And God especially told Israel, Do not let your daughters marry their sons and do not allow your sons to marry their daughters. You maintain a separateness and you maintain a recognition that you are wholly dedicated unto me as God. And God even forewarned them that if you do, they will turn you from me. You'll begin to follow their gods and you'll begin to follow the preferences. And you ultimately will, of course, become disobedient and faithless with respect to me. That warning, of course, came to be the case, didn't it? Not just with the general people, let's say, of Israel, but even with respect to the king himself. No wonder these next comments are then in order. Look at the sheer number in verses 2 and 3. 
700 wives, 300 concubines. It likely is the case that many of those ladies were selected for political reasons. It was true in the ancient era that often a king would marry, say, the daughter of a king of another empire so that peace could reign between the two empires. That that empire would never attack us because his own daughter is now part of us and things like that. That was no excuse for Solomon. He was called to a higher ambition than just political correctness, if you please. His ambition was to be right with God and to follow His will always. God had promised He'd take care of all those other matters. And we find here that Solomon made himself legion with these thousand other women, Zidonians, Moabites, Ammonites, those of Egypt and other places. And isn't it still rather sad to appreciate that again the statement says, verse number 3, His wives turned away his heart. He who once was so faithful, who once appeared to have everything in order for a powerful and prosperous reign in every regard. After all, his dad was the king. He had grown up in the palace and in all the wealth it had to offer. And now, despite the goodness with which he began his own reign, the wisdom, the understanding that he asked of God, the wealth and the provision that God made available, he still made these choices. And sure enough, just as God said, his heart was turned away. It would notice, you might notice with me again, it says that when Solomon was old, these things happened in verse number 4. They didn't turn away his heart overnight. He was too strong for that. But gradually over time, gradually over consideration, he began to desire there be peace in the household. And we all know how much a loving thing it is for peace to dwell in the household. And over time, his desire for that was more than his love for God. And so it was that he chose to please his wives more so than please God. It is a tragic thing, isn't it? Our heart can't help but just sink and almost bottom out as we reach chapter 11. What was so promising, so full of possibility and potential is now damaged with all the disobedience and iniquity that is now discussed before us. Look even further at some of these thoughts. The language is so very strong, isn't it? I've asked you to notice some of the explicit words the Holy Spirit has utilized. First of all, his heart was not perfect with the Lord, verse 4. He began to have in his heart again a desire and an appreciation for the sinfulness and iniquity that his wives were pursuing. He came to the point he didn't see it as wrong anymore. Notice furthermore it says he went after other gods. He was actually involved in encouraging their worship. Believe it or not. The God of heaven that had been so good to him. The God of heaven that had blessed him so marvelously. Now he actually pursued with initiative the gods of these wives of his. In fact, isn't it rather startling and almost shocking to read what is stated in verse number 7. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh. He actually provided the funds. He oversaw the work by virtue of that matter himself, building an idolatrous place of worship for Chemosh. Did you notice where he built it? It wasn't on the far distant outskirts of Dan or Bethel. 
He built it at Jerusalem, the very place near the palace, the very place not far from the temple itself. Hard to believe, isn't it? But doesn't it testify to us what can occur if we allow our heart to be distracted by that which is untrue and false? God was angry with Solomon, and now we know why. Let's devote the remainder of our lesson to ask, how can we keep ourselves on track so that that kind of anger on the part of God will never be directed toward you and toward me? Maybe as we close that slide and get ready for the next one. Isn't it fair to say that the problem, of course, came in Solomon's heart? It was he who allowed this to happen. He was the king. No one forced it upon him. He made the decision to marry these ladies, and he made the decision to build this place for Chemosh, and he made the decisions. And thus, there's no one to blame but him. As you and I give thought to this one, I would ask you to highlight verse number 10 and God's statement to him. And had, commanded, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. God didn't excuse Solomon. He rather directly asserted that he was guilty himself of disobedience. And notice the punishment. Verse number 11. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant, Solomon, because you've made the decisions you've made, my judgment is as follows. I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. Of course, in that ancient era, as surely we and I can still appreciate today, how important is the kingdom. And yet you notice that God expressly said to Solomon, I'm going to take it away from your descendants. Solomon would have a son, and after Solomon died, Rehoboam did reign on the throne. But what, had, what transpired in Rehoboam's reign? You and I remember it well. There was a time that the tribes were united as one whole of twelve tribes serving and the great God of heaven. And yet in the reign of Rehoboam, ten of them seceded. They formed their own kingdom. Rehoboam was left with but two of them. God did rend the kingdom all right. The vast majority chose not to stay with Rehoboam. They chose to follow Jeroboam, the man of wickedness and sin in himself. But isn't it true the kingdom was taken and rent away? What a sore and grievous punishment. I wonder if you and I could ask Solomon today, was it worth it? If he was able to speak to us from the realms of the Hadean world and we ask him, Solomon, was it worth it? What do you suppose he'd say? It would appear that Solomon died in infamy. It says when he was old, though he was faithful at times, we have to wonder, when Solomon died, was he a lost man? It certainly appears that he was. Lost forever apart from God because he allowed his wives to turn away his heart. As you and I think about what happened to Solomon... Let's now make those applications to you and to me. So many centuries this side of Solomon. Although it's the fact you and I now live 3,000 years this side of when Solomon did. They do speak volumes to you and to me, do they not? And might we begin with some thoughts like this. Any person, you, me alike, any person can fall prey to the same kind of scenario that ultimately befell Solomon. 
we tend to think of ourselves as strong and ourselves as unable to be touched with the majesty and the iniquity and ungodliness that may go on. But Solomon was touched. And we noticed it didn't happen overnight. Gradually, our fortitude weakens. Gradually, our resistance is able to wane. The circumstances of life can bring about that which ultimately we're willing to tolerate. What once is absolutely anathema eventually comes to be tolerated. And after toleration, eventually we embrace it. That happened to Solomon. I'm sure that had you asked him in the days of 1 Kings 4 about, will you ever build an idolater's place of worship to key moss, he'd have laughed at you. I suppose he would. I feel sure he would. The thought then would never have crossed his mind. But what happened years later? Doesn't it remind us of these next thoughts? Isn't it true that, quite frankly, that book known as the Song of Solomon is, in many ways, an inspired record of the foolishness of Solomon? When you and I read that eight-chapter book known as the Song of Solomon, that book has many figurative matters contained in it, but the basic thrust is Solomon, though a married man, was wooing a maiden woman, and she refused him. We have to give her credit for that. She understood the integrity of the fact that she already had someone that she was betrothed to. She had the one to whom she was engaged, and she wasn't about to give him up for Solomon, and good for her. Isn't it interesting that we have a biblical book detailing for us Solomon's desire to woo a woman, and she refused him. Interesting, isn't it? And yet, as we think about that book known as the Canticles or the Song of Solomon... Doesn't it bring us to readily appreciate that Solomon maybe gives us an example that even the devil can use the avenue of companionship and love and the avenue of that which on the whole seems so right, ultimately as a tactic to cause those to fall aside from him. That is to say, from God. That's what happened here. No wonder we're admonished on so many occasions to keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Solomon had a heart problem. May you and I keep our heart and do so with all the earnestness and the fervency and the diligence so that we will never allow ourselves to fall prey to the kind of matter that ultimately made such problem for Solomon. Beyond that, you might appreciate this. Those sacred words that offer to us some of the finest statements at all about the nature of companionship relative to these matters. In 1 Corinthians 15:33, in the heart of the New Testament, Paul, writing to the Corinthian congregation, said to them, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. If you associate long enough with it, eventually you'll tolerate it. Eventually, in the interest of peace and sanctity of your own heart, you'll tolerate what once you would have had nothing to do with. We remember even in Psalm 119, verse number 63, David in majesty said, I am a companion of all them that fear thy name. May you and I have that same kind of desire filled with the integrity and wishes along that line. Isn't it shocking then to see what transpired in the life of Solomon? And how many of his own words in the book of Proverbs, if he had just followed his own advice, he would never have made the mistakes he made. That text we noted a moment ago, keep thy heart with all diligence, Solomon wrote that. Isn't that ironic? The very man that wrote that didn't heed his own advice. 
Later in Proverbs 23, 23, he wrote, Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. If Solomon gives us that kind of advice, I suppose we come to the inspiration found in language and in passages like those that give us admonition and help us appreciate those very interesting and powerful precepts. Paul, writing to those again in Corinth, expressly told them, Marry only in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7, 39. And those thoughts are echoed in the opening words of Romans chapter 7. Given the nature of what advice was given on that occasion, here we read about the appreciation of these individuals. It happens to have been ladies. Their previous husbands had died, and so they were widows. Paul didn't forbid them from remarrying, but he did say, you marry only in the Lord. Doesn't that give us words of wisdom in regard to the selection, finding someone, finding that maid who loves the same thing that you do above anything else, that is to say, to sojourn in the lovely portals of heaven some grand day. The truth of God that leads to that appreciation, the features and the mistakes that we saw in the life of Solomon are an open testimony to the wisdom of that advice and to the foolishness of neglecting it. Isn't it true that in light of that, we find yet another passage that seemingly speaks volumes about some of the features attached to that point. In the sixth chapter of the second Corinthian letter, Paul addressing the same congregation, but on that occasion, somewhat later to them he said, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what concord hath light with darkness? What then should be said? It is a commandment, isn't it? It is stated that way even in the Greek text. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. As a person then enters the marriage bond, giving appreciation to that circumstance that now will prevail in that home. You'll notice that there was a strong warning that governs really all the features and aspects of associations in this life. And in the midst of it, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Those unbelievers don't have the same appreciation that a child of God does. They don't have the same mission, the same objective, the same heartfelt understanding of the truth. It is true that hopefully in time they will come to appreciate it so. But to choose to join oneself to that person who doesn't love the Lord like you do, oh, what a serious decision is being made. A decision that's just like the one Solomon made. And yet he made it a thousand times. I have no doubt that if he could speak to us today, he would say, read my book of Proverbs and listen with care and don't follow the advice and don't follow what I did, but follow the advice I gave. The mistakes he made are such that the Old Testament rings with reverberation about them. Isn't it true? As you come beyond that on this slide, you also notice the multiplicity of these wives that Solomon chose. A thousand of them. Seven of them, 700 of them full wives, 300 secondary concubines. And yet we know that in the Garden of Eden, that was not anything even remotely represented, was it? There was Adam and there was Eve. There weren't a dozen wives for Adam and there weren't a dozen husbands for Eve. It was a recognition of there was one woman for one man. 
And in that uniqueness, that pattern wasn't messed up for five generations. And it was then the descendants of Cain that did it. It was Lamech, who himself chose two wives, not just one, but two. And sadly enough, there were many, of course, later in the Old Testament who chose to make mistakes not unlike that which Lamech did. The sadness, the description that's found on those occasions bring us to see some of the difficulties that came into the lives of so very many. It truly then is easy to conclude what a great error it was for Solomon to bend himself to please his wives as opposed to pleasing God. For Solomon's going to have to stand before the God of heaven in judgment and give an answer for what he did. And he built an idolatrous place of worship. He encouraged worship of Chemosh and Molech and Baal and the others. And as king of Israel, forever it's recorded in the annals of biblical history, he endorsed it. Oh, the folly and oh, the foolishness. You'll notice, though, his wives were able to ultimately capture his heart. And as they did, they captured his soul too. Satan ultimately got Solomon. I hope that you and I can in reflection give some consideration to those commandments that remind us one final time that the heart is to be kept above all else. And these associations that embody the progression toward the selection, for instance, of a mate must be done with the utmost of careful consideration of Solomon's mistake. Look at some of these verses, please, with me. We noted that text in Proverbs 4, verse 23 a bit earlier. But can we not again appreciate the uniqueness of keeping one's heart and striving to do so with diligence? That word diligence means with care. It has to do with a matter of great importance and significance, and therefore the issue and objective at hand is of the utmost vitality. It is true in light of that, that we race to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Solomon didn't write this. His father David did. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If only Solomon had listened with some care to what his dad had even said. And maybe finally... In Psalm 119, verses 2 and again in verse 69, the fullness, the entirety, the wholeness with which our heart must be directed to a following of God, and that of course means that associations that we select will not be done haphazardly, carelessly, with an idea to jeopardize our eternal spirit and soul. Solomon lost his salvation because again he chose so poorly. As you close that slide with me, you notice that verse number 11 of Psalm 119, that longest chapter in all the Bible, helps us again see it worded like this. As you and I think about keeping our heart and directing it properly and keeping in mind the thoroughness and fullness to be found in association with God, David, put it in words like these, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. If only Solomon had hid more of that word in his heart. If only he had kept it fully in mind and in those cases and situations in which those wives had asked him some of these questions. And he'd said, no, I won't build an idolatrous place of worship. And no, I won't support and encourage it even financially. But Solomon didn't do it. 
he gave in to that which was their request. And in giving in, in giving in, he gave up everything. It may well be in light of that that we'll close our lesson tonight. And certainly it hadn't been a very pleasant lesson in many ways, but it's what the Word of God has recorded. And God's book always tells the truth, doesn't it? This is what Solomon did. May you and I realize that what was written before time was written for our learning, Romans 15, 4. That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. May we, with interest, with care, with diligence, with excitement, not make the same foolish choice in principle that Solomon did. And so, as we close the lesson, what an evil influence his mate, his mates, I should say, had upon him. And those evil influences ultimately damaged everything that he had devoted so much of a lifetime to build. It was all lost so quickly. And he died a man apart from God. I would suggest that we maybe close the lesson somewhat ironically with a passage from the very pen of the same man, Solomon, when he was thinking more carefully and more wisely. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, he said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, according to that He hath done, whether it be good or evil. As we said before, if only Solomon would have listened to his own advice, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments. Nothing else ultimately will matter. Tonight, what about your relationship to the Heavenly Father. Is all in good standing? As you think about the associations of life, do you and I encourage companionships and association that not only is questionable, but is downright evil? As we do so, may we keep in mind that if that's allowed to continue, will you and I end up as Solomon did? The odds are pretty good. May we stop those kinds of progressions and make the better choices this very night, if you're not a faithful New Testament Christian, if you perhaps have never yet rendered initial obedience to the gospel's call of invitation, you have that opportunity tonight. You need to hear with care what God has said. Believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God, Acts 8.37. Repent of your sins as commanded in Acts 2.38. As you repent and then confess the marvelous name of Jesus as your Savior, as commanded in texts like 1 John 4.12, and then be baptized and live faithfully until death. If you have walked away from faithfulness and you no longer are the steadfast example of righteousness that you ought to be, why not come back tonight to your first love? Be like Solomon when he first began his reign. Return to that state of faithfulness and never lapse from it. If tonight we could be of help to you by way of prayers for strength or encouragement, we'd be honored to fulfill that request. If we could help any person on this occasion, don't delay or wait another moment, but why not come now as we stand and sing the chosen song?